Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Brett Alderman, and I am a writer inspired by Jung and with a mythopoetic sensibility. Welcome to Spokes. I'm Colette Colfer and I'm here today at the introduction with... Terry Hackett! <laughs> Terry is the co-producer and he's not usually audible in these episodes but he's always there doing the, ex- the editing and the mixing. So we just decided to come outside and walk in some of the fields around where we live just to give you an idea of the sounds and the scenes in the countryside in Ireland uh, were in June. We're not in full lockdown at the moment, but there are still restrictions in place. So this means that we can't meet people to record them face to face. So we're still doing online recordings, which of course does have the advantage that we can talk to people from all over the world. Remote recordings. Remote recordings. Today's episode features a person who is in California. It is Dr. Brett Alderman. He is a writer and a life coach and the main topic of conversation today is his book which is called Symptom Symbol and the Other of Language. It's a book that really focuses on what is called the linguistic turn that happened in the 20th century which was an increased focus on language and the impact of that focus on language was in a way a kind of a neglect of the body Uh, and he means when he's talking about the body it's the animate body the animate body is a body that has soul and also a neglect in a way of nature so uh, we hope you enjoy this episode i began the conversation with brett by asking him about his job as a life coach um in my case, it, it it's really close to psychotherapy, um, although sometimes it's a little 
little bit closer to what people think of when they think of a life coach, which is, you know, you have certain goals in mind and you want to talk them through with someone else who might be able to give you a few tips as to how to achieve them and um, kind of bring out your, your full potential and also check in on um, what actions you've claimed that you're going to take to achieve those goals. And so there's a lot of overlap with uh, psychology and therapy, although they are two different animals, but I, I tend to blur the boundaries quite a bit in my work. So with people coming to you, would they already know their goals or is it about helping them to figure out what the goals are as well? It's a little bit of both. And sometimes what happens is that they'll they'll come to me for coaching and the more they talk to me, the more they realize, well, I, what I really want is something closer to psychotherapy. And at which point I say, well, we can do something that's closer to psychotherapy. And then so. that influences their goals, I guess, then when sure. they find out about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, one of the great things about coaching is that you realize that when people have certain goals, the obstacles to those goals often turn out to be very meaningful and almost sort of valuable when you can really start to drill down on them. Like, oh, that's interesting that that particular obstacle showed up in your life at that particular moment. Like, I wonder why why that, you know, and then it, it's a it's a, a way of sort of opening a, a magical door into like a whole other aspect of what's going on in them. So, wow. so is the obstacle in a way, can it be, I, I don't know if I'm understanding it correctly, but is the obstacle, can it be a way of redirecting the person to another goal? Is that well, it can be. It can be, or it can also give a whole other dimension of why the goal is even there to begin with, why it's meaningful. Um, and so I'm finding a lot of really great overlap between depth psychology and Jung psychology and coaching. Um, so that's pretty fun because, yeah, in Jung psychology, of course, any obstacle to a goal is something that's might have a purpose. It might be trying to get you to stop to really take a look at something. Um, it might not just be asking you to do that. It might insist upon it until you really stop and look at what's going on. Um, yeah. could, you give, could you give us an example of that? Uh, I'm trying to think of an example that's not directly from one of my coaching clients because that would not be. What about from your own life? Mm. From my own life, I would say, and this is directly related actually to, to the book and so many other things that we'll probably talk about today, but um, I wanted to write for the longest time and I, would, I wanted to write novels and I had the hardest time and I would start drafts and I would, I would, I got as far as maybe 18, 20 pages of a novel and it just wouldn't go anywhere. And I'd, I'd have all these great ideas, but they never really came to fruition. It was very frustrating. And I was in this state for years 
And I kept on having these recurrent dreams that told me that I had to go back to school. And I found them annoying as hell. I was just like, another one of these effing dreams. God damn it. And it felt like that idea of going back to school was just an annoyance because I was pretty clear that I didn't want to. I didn't really have a lot of faith in academia. And so my conscious perspective was, no, I'm not going to go back. The dreams were so insistent that, you know, knowing what I've Knew, knowing what I knew of, of Jung's thinking, I, I knew that, okay, well, I have to at least explore the possibility. There's maybe something here that I'm just not understanding. So I went ahead and I applied at a school and I got accepted. And then I, even at that point, I thought, well, I'll, okay, I'll, I'm just going to go to the first couple classes and see if I really want to go through with this. And I went ahead and I did it. The interesting thing was that as soon as I was accepted to that um, school, and I was given essays to write, assignments, the writing just flowed, and I was like, I was just in the groove. I was, I was writing one essay after another, and they were um, works that I was proud of. And so looking back, I mean, I was I was understanding that idea of going back to school as an obstacle when in fact it was a, I mean, here yeah. I am talking with you about a book I wrote. So <laughs> what, what the school, when you went back to the school, was that, uh, what course was it that you did? Well, I, I went to get my master's and later my PhD in depth psychology at the Pacifica Graduate Institute. Right. Um, yeah. So when we say depth psychology, that that's yeah, Jungian, right? It's Jungian, it's Freudian, it's it's um, a way of saying any psychology that takes seriously the idea of the unconscious. Okay. Um, in my case, that's a lot of Jung and a lot of post-Jungian thinkers. That's that's my uh, that's my my strength, my forte, my interest. Yeah. Um, so to get to the book, I mean, I think the name of the book is Symptom, Symbol and the Other of Language, a Jungian interpretation of the linguistic turn. I think to break it down, like a key idea in the book is the importance of the body, would you say? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that or why? how did you come to that? Mm, I'm going to have to kind of backtrack and go to ideas that precede that to make that make sense. Um, yeah, I hope that's okay. So there's this really uh, prevalent idea in this movement called the linguistic turn, which I can define at some point if you like, that language is meaningful and language Language is meaningful because of the way one word relates to another, relates to another, relates to another. That words like light and dark, male and female, up and down, wet and dry, have meaning by virtue of the way they relate to one another. So the, the, the 
what is kind of left out of that vision is the way that all of those words might be meaningful by virtue of something that you actually live or experience, right? So, I mean, okay, the word light has a certain meaning because of its relation to the word dark. I mean, that kind of makes sense. You need some sort of opposition there. But it also makes sense that right now, where I'm at, I can look outside my window and I can see the light playing on the blinds. And there's an actual, like, visceral, sensate experience of light. And I just thought, well, that that has to inform our, our sense of, like, the meaning of that word. That has to come into play somewhere. So I thought, well, what's, okay, but it's not, I'm not seeing it come into play with these thinkers. They seem to be leaving that out. So I'm just thinking to myself, what are they leaving out? Well, they're leaving out the the sensate body, the experiential body, the the immediacy of sensual experience. So that's kind of where that started to come in. Does that answer the question without getting too... It does. And then we go back to maybe you explaining when you say about the linguistic turn. What do you mean by that? Good question. I mean, that's that's a great, that's a really good place to start. So um, the linguistic turn is this really big player, big actor on the stage of 20th century thought, 20th and 21st century thought. And it was a coin, a, a term coined by Gustav Bergman in 1953. And later the, the, the term linguistic turn was popularized by a philosopher named Richard Rorty um, in a book by that same name. And it sort of alludes to this pervasive shift in Western philosophy and humanities and social sciences um, in which there was a growing acceptance of the idea that language, rather than merely describing or reflecting the world, actually creates it, actually creates our sense of what's real and what's true and what's beautiful. So before the turn, I mean, in kind of simplistic terms, the idea was that our words sort of reflect some sort of pre-existing reality. You see the light outside the window, you learn that there's this this word that you can use, light, that will in some way represent that that thing you're seeing, and that's how language works. Well, the linguistic turn comes along and says, no, it's not that simple. In fact, it's really, really quite complicated, but once we tease apart all the complications, what we see is that the relationship is reversed. It's actually the word light and or dark or, you know, male, female, whatever, that's creating, in a sense, what you believe to be true. It's a it's a really interesting philosophical inversion. Um, that's, a, you know, somebody who's a real expert in the field might say that's a, a heck of a simplification and it is but you know if you want to get farther in the weeds um i think it, that's why you spend years of your life reading people like derrida and foucault like i do but it's not an easy trek do you enjoy reading them no i can't stand it i'm really looking forward to the <laughs> to uh like finishing this next book because i've got another one that i'm hoping to have out next year oh wow um, you have to tell us about that can you i i, I will but um i'm i'm 
I'm convinced. I'm telling myself once this one is out, I am writing about something so entirely different. I don't want to hear anything about you know linguistic signs and reference and Derrida and Foucault and Richard Rorty and all of these these guys. I'm tired of semiotics and all of their yeah. I'm tired of that. Mm. But they're so popular. I, I, yeah. I, when you talk about the linguistic turn, then does that connect into the idea of um, things as being socially constructed? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you think of language, lang- language is a set of constructs. And I think the linguistic turn really did so much to promote this idea um, uh, well, this focus on language and language as a set of constructs, and um, it at the same time it did a great deal to undermine the idea that these constructs refer to something beyond themselves. So, let's say, um, you know, to to touch a hot button issue, the words male and female. Well, the words in and of themselves, you could say, are constructs. And I think it's okay to think of the words themselves as constructs, but it's also good to remember that those constructs refer to this sort of reality that we can all see and that biology has a lot to say about. Um, so, you know, this sense of the of things being just constructs, I think has a lot to do with the linguistic turn and the focus on uh, things like semiotics. Right. So the linguistic turn and language is, and in the book you talk about this, the cleavage Mm. of um, ideas from nature, from the earth. Is that right? Have I got it right? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, I I do it in in kind of a a a strange roundabout way, I think, because um you know, I tried to use kind of an associative logic in the book. It's not really a straight ahead philosophical argument. I mean, I I rely upon that a bit, but I also just try to play with images and and play with words and, you know, one of the one of the key ideas in a lot of these thinkers that are that are part of the linguistic turn, and particularly people like Foucault and Derrida and people who who are what you would call post-structuralists and structuralists, they take issue with the idea of nature and human nature. And so I was thinking about that, thinking, what, what on earth, why would that be? And what does that mean? And sort of letting my, not just letting my rational brain mind think it through, but also sort of playing with images. And I looked up the, the etymology of the word nature, and it happened to be that nature comes from the Latin natus, which is place of birth. And then I thought, well, great. Where where's our place of birth? Well, we're, our place of birth is the Earth. And then I just started kind of going down this sort of associative, this 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 line of associations, and thought, well, gosh, if you de- if you're denying nature and human nature, then in some sense you're denying 
the earth itself, right? And and then I started thinking of other metaphors that kind of go through all of these thinkers. And, you know, a lot of these thinkers are called post-foundationalists. And they talk about how our, how our, our truth claims aren't grounded. Well, then I thought, well, what's ground? Well, ground is the earth. And what's foundation? Foundation is the earth. And then I just sort of like letting all of those associations inform my critique, which is exactly the type of thing that you want to do if you take Carl Jung's thinking seriously. You want to allow yourself, I think, this is what I was trying to do, approach certain intellectual ideas as if they were psychological complexes and approach them also as if they were like dream symbols and sort of allow myself to say, well, what on earth does that mean? And not just in sort of this explicit sort of philosophical sense of like, okay, let's dissect these ideas and see whether or not they make sense and we can refute the arguments. I wanted to do a little bit of that but do a lot more and also say, well, what what dream is being dreamt here? Like what what images and feelings and sensations and intuitions come up when I read some of the ideas that these thinkers put forth. I got way off topic. I don't even know what the question was that originated that no, response. No, that's perfect. But uh, uh, can I, I just follow it on with that? Well, what was what was your intuition then? I think in the be- beginning of the book, you call it a book of mythopoetic imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I read over that sentence a good few times and I was thinking about it like, so mythopoetic you're bringing myth into it yeah there's also poetry in it sure and when you say imagination the imagination as being something that's separate or you know in opposition to the the rational side of the brain is it mm-hmm. yeah so but yeah. what you said there about where, where did your intuition lead on that then what why was the linguistic turn or what's going on? I know that's, you're going to have to simplify it maybe, but. Well, so like there's this one particular idea that's really prevalent in the turn that I wanted to like keep coming back to. It was kind of like the central image or symbol that I wanted to keep interpreting. And that's, that's this idea of language as being, um, kind of insular, like one word, what I was describing before, one word refers to another, refers to another, refers to another. There's all this emphasis on language as construct and no sense of how it relates to anything that you might actually live or experience or see or sense or touch. And so, you know, thinking of that idea, then like my imagination, immediately I see something like a body or no, a head floating like 10 feet above a body like there's just like a weird disconnect you know like i can literally imagine a head talking and it's like floating disconnected from an actual human body i mean that's and that on from one perspective that's just some weird surrealistic image but if you study depth psychology you think well but there's meaning there and so you know for me that 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 image speaks of a dissociation Okay, dissociation between language-bearing intellect and physical, visceral body, sensing, feeling, touching, seeing, 
intuiting. So that's, I mean, that's where my my mythopoetic imagination takes me. Um, so, and then once I started thinking about that, well, I think, well, the disconnect goes even farther, you know. Then it's also, it's a bit like that, that image leads me to an astronaut who's flying far above the Earth, you know, disconnected from that, that environment that that we all spring from, right? The earth as the milieu that we inhabit. And, you know, then it, I, I just kind of kept going with this sort of mythopoetic way of approaching these ideas and kind of tried to toggle back to the ideas in and of themselves, you know, putting forth basic theory, basic understanding of, you know, uh, structuralist language theory and post-structuralism and deconstruction and, and, uh, but kind of going back and forth. Mm. It really works. But I want to ask you, were you surprised yourself by the images that did come up? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, I was also surprised at how well they worked together. You know, they just, I mean, I, I, I cite a lot um, someone who was actually one of my teachers at Pacifica, Robert Romanetian, and he wrote a, a book that's, um, you know, been republished many, many times called Technology, a Symptom and Dream. And he uses, a, you know, a lot of those images of that I also refer to of a corpse and an astronaut and and things like that. And so um, when I started working with those images, I was really surprised how well they related to images and ideas I was seeing in um, deconstruction and post-structuralism and this sort of radical postmodernism that um, that he didn't write about. And it was, so Robert Romanetian, right, who I'm drawing these image, images from, his imagery worked really well with what I was talking about, but he wasn't, he had never wrote about those authors at all. Okay, he you know, hadn't made the same connections that you he had. He hadn't made the same connections, but I was lucky enough to be able to send him the book, and, and he read it, and he, and he said, oh my God, it all makes perfect sense, doesn't it, you know? Which, of, of course, the, is all... Yeah, mm, go ahead. Well, one of the ones that really struck me is at the very beginning of the book, when you have Vesalius in the year, is it 1543, around mm-hmm. then, and he is cutting open the cadaver, the, the body, the corpse, yeah. and then you uh, kind of superimpose it in a way, or you make a parallel yeah. connection with Saucer yeah. and yeah. him and his diagram, the oval, with the mm-hmm. line going across and the yeah. signifier signified. And that was really powerful. Oh, I'm you glad. You know, the, the yeah. parallel there. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you said that because it felt really powerful when I first came across it, but then trying to make it work intellectually and trying to like really explain what I meant by that parallel took me a lot of work. And I, and it's good to hear that it makes sense to other people. But basically I tried to just 
say that, you know, there's a certain way that we started to look at the human body. We started to look at it as an anatomical object, um, as, as, a, as this thing that had a particular structure that we could literally dissect. And um, that was not something that people always did. I mean, it's really, take, it's really part of this sort of, um, it's part of modernity. It's part of a particular ideal of objectivity. And, and, you know, we didn't always look at physical bodies as objects to be understood. You know, just like right now, I'm looking at you, and I'm not thinking of this as an object to be understood. I'm thinking of this as a subject to be understood. There's a person that I'm relating to. So that shift in looking at at a somebody as just a body, as you know, as a as a someone that I can relate to, is now we're going to understand that someone as like a physical object. I can see how it works, you know, even saying it, you know, it's like a different shift in looking at bodies. So, I mean, to get back to the, what we were talking about, I think something similar took place in the way we approach language, where, where Sasur started to look at language as this object that could be dissected and pulled apart and we could see how it works. Um, but it's a very particular way of looking at language that's not it's it's important to know what you're doing when you decide to dissect or deconstruct language um, because you're really looking at language in a particular way if you're not aware that you're doing that you, you can build up these huge blind spots in your perspective I hope yeah. I'm making sense. Yeah. No, you are making sense. Um, one thing that struck me in, in the book that you were, when you were talking about Derrida was about language and how he looks at it all uh, at the one time. I, I, I think, is there in a sense that he doesn't trace backwards? So it's about what the, the words mean now. Like you talked about nature and nature is connected to the Latin natus. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I think Derrida wouldn't do that. Is that right? Would he look at that that way? You know, he he definitely looks at etymology. So he does he does do that. He he traces he traces words back in that way. But he's a strange one because he works on the assumption that all of the distinctions that we're making in language are none of them are based on anything self-evident. All of it is part of this sort of metaphysical heritage, that's his, his terms, um, that we just sort of inherit. But they're not really based on anything to begin with. So, you know, to go back to the words we've used before, you know, light, light and dark, day and night, um, wet and dry, these are all terms we've inherited, but we haven't inherited them because there's something in experience that just makes them self-evident. So he sort of dissociates language from this sort of extra referential field. It's kind of weird. So he almost, 
when he's tracing back etymology in the same way that I do, he always arrives at a place where there's just nothing. It's like language is, is founded on an abyss. Right. So words referring to other words, to other words, to other words, yeah. as opposed to that connection between, you talk about the animate body. Mm-hmm. So the body that's animate is the body that is filled with soul or life. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. and it's, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful word to focus on. I mean, we usually think of animate as being, okay, something that's moving. And, but, um, you know, the, the word comes from the Latin anima, which means soul and animus, which means spirit. And, um, uh, an animate human being, a being that is moving is a being that's still alive. And a non-animate body is a, well, it's, it's a corpse. It's a dead body. And it's, uh, I, for, I forgot. Can you, can you repeat what you just said? How did I, how did I get here? Um, about the animate, um, the lived body. Now, I, can't, mm. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. Yes, yeah. So I think, so that that term animate body speaks to, you know, the, the, the experiential body that in some way is, uh, you have to relate to it to understand why language is meaningful. Okay, so I'm, so the term grief, of course, gains something of its meaning by virtue of its relation to words like happiness and joy. Of course, you know, that's kind of this this constructed element of it. But it also has everything to do with my experience of grief, right? You know, when I got divorced, I cried like a baby for several months. And that experience, that visceral, gut-wrenching feeling informs my what I understand that word grief to mean. And I think what deconstruction does and post-structuralism does is it, it, it rends that connection between visceral experience or visceral perception and the construct, right? And, and so it, 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 that's what I keep trying to get at because I feel like there's, there's, there's something so dissociated there. There's something so just like there's a psychological split there. That's what I keep sensing. Okay, and the next question is a big one then. It's why has that happened, do you think? Mm. Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, you know, in part of it, it's because of our incredible success. We we're such a successful species and we can create really comfortable lives for ourselves. And we have all these ways of avoiding uh, pain and suffering and making things comfortable. And that in itself, I think, leads to a, a, a situation in which we can be sort of dissociated and, and it, 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 we can get by with it. Um, you know, dissociation, I always think, is a, as a way of um, responding to and not quite necessarily feeling d- 
difficult feelings like anxiety or depression or rage or whatever, you know, whatever there's at, there might be at the heart of a psychological complex. Well, dissociation is there because it allows us not to feel that, right? And it's part of the purpose. That's part of why we dissociate. That's part of what the reason why, um, I mean, to use a, a, a really graphic example, uh, you know, sometimes when people are being raped, they'll actually see the what's going on as if they were outside of their body. Um, they're splitting off from the experience because it's just too atrocious, right? So there's a dissociation there. And the, so that's just a natural part of being human, the ability to dissociate when something's painful. But there seems to be something in the nature of the way we're living now where I think that can become kind of a, a, constant, a constant state. Um, is, is it dangerous? Is it bad? Like, oh, you know? I, oh, yes. Yes. I mean, and why? It, well, I mean, you can be a person looking at your your iPhone walking across the street and being sort of split off from everything that's happening around you, but eventually you're going to get hit by a car. I mean, it's like people have to be um, embedded within their surroundings in some way just to function. And increasingly we're, we're able not to do that. Um, but you can only do that up to a point. Um, so let me give you an example. Uh, you, we're increasingly spending more and more time looking at screens and becoming transfixed by the, the words and the images upon the screens, so much so that that becomes our primary reality and we lose any sense of, you know, the, the, the way our feet feel touching the ground or the floor, or the way our back feels or whether or not we're breathing deeply or, or any sort of emotion. So we're sort of we're sort of split off from our from our bodies and entranced by you know what we're seeing on a screen but that's not a viable way to live that's just not what we evolved to do you know it's just do you think it's going to change though i mean we're heading into an era you know you mentioned about cyborgs in in the book and I think you say post-humanism, but also like there's the idea of transhumanism, where we become mixed in with the technologies. And I always wonder, I, I wonder if we're even already there, because like you said, people are walking down the street with their phones in their hands. Mm -hmm. So we're already kind of almost a mix in a way. But is there any, we're not going to be going back. We're going to be going forward. So what can happen? You know, like what, what, what's the next steps? What can we do? It's it's a scary it's a scary proposition. I mean, you and I are speaking right now with headphones on, you know, so we're already like one step closer to being these sort of hybrid creatures. Um, but it's not an all or nothing proposition. We can find, I think, I hope, reasonable, sensible ways of interacting with technology and even using it, perhaps. Um, to enhance our our physical bodies, we already do. Um, 
but I, I like to think that we can do that in such a way that doesn't go off the deep edge. I mean, some of the people who are post-humanists or transhumanists, I mean, really do think that you that someday you'll be able to just transfer the content of your of your uh, you know thinking onto a computer, and that that will actually represent some sort of um, some sort of eternal life, as if you know just because the information that you've gained is somehow going to continue after your body does not, that that means that you'll be immortal. Now, that's insane. That is, to me, is absolutely insane. But there's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the minute you start talking about that and immortality, I think of gods. And you do, you Mm. bring that idea in as well. So is it a question like you, you use the myth of Prometheus mm-hmm. and about trying to take the power away from the idea of there being a transcendent so that it's the humans and the ego that becomes all important in a way. Is that mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And which, you know, it's I think it's something that's playing out in a lot of different areas. And I you know, in the book, I, I focus on how it's playing out within postmodernism, but you can see how closely some of those postmodern ideas also relate really well to, for example, you know, posthumanism and transhumanism and the cyborg um, and what have you. But so I think, for example, in post structuralism and deconstruction there's this idea that reality is just a construct everything that we're experiencing and and is really just constructed well therefore we can change the constructions and change reality really i mean it's all within our power you know just find a new word to describe something and now something's fundamentally changed um and that's a that's a myth with a grain of truth to it. But if you're stuck in that myth and you're really thinking that humans are um, these godlike creatures that can construct reality, you're, you're, you're in for a pretty brutal awakening because, um, you know, there is something that you would call objective reality that doesn't, doesn't give a bleep about your linguistic constructions. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's like and I tweeted the other day that um, you can deconstruct gravity, but you're still going to fall on your face if you don't pay attention to it, you know. You mentioned in the book about uh, pain can bring us back in a way mm. to the body. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. Uh, having had a child, I think labor is going through labor and giving birth is such a grounding experience. You know, it's mm-hmm. very, you're here. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the other danger is the idea that we create other gods. I mean, I'm not saying that any one god or idea of god is necessarily important, but then do we create things that become our gods? Yeah. Yeah. And this, 
to me, this makes perfect sense in terms of Jung's psychology. It's really at the point when you think you are completely self-determined, that you are completely in control of yourself and your life and everything. It's really at that moment that psyche or life will find a way of showing you you're not. Um, you know, it's it's when you feel most self-possessed that you're going to be possessed by something that feels like it comes completely outside of you. Um, in in so it's at the moment when we feel godlike that at that very moment we start to be possessed by something that Jung would call a god. You know, he he, he and that people might want to want to understand that metaphorically. Um, it's not it's, he's not making a theological argument. He's saying that what other generations called gods, those things are still with us, um, and they they still have the same power over us as they did before. Perhaps they even have more power because we're so convinced that they don't exist. Hmm. And will they come back in then? They already are. I mean, they already are. Um, how many of us are ruled by compulsion, by addiction, by symptoms in our lives that we can't understand and, and just keep keep um, keep coming back? I mean, you look at people and people are nobody's as as free and autonomous and in control as they might appear to be i think we we're all sort of at times struggling and um probably more possessed than we would like to believe if that makes any sense Right. And is there, is there a way to become conscious of that? Sure. I mean, you listen to your dreams. You listen to strange coincidences in your life. You listen to um, the symptoms of your body. You know, that's a lot, a lot of depth psychology really started with that. I mean, it started with um, people like Freud who would like have a patient who was suffering from paralysis and you know the the patient had already gone through all of the 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 scientific tests that they had at the time there was no organic cause they couldn't figure out why this patient was paralyzed and so freud had the brilliant idea of listening to the person's story listening to what the person had lived recently and in this particular case that I'm thinking about, well, she had just lost her fiance. Her fiance died. Well, what what did she do with her fiance? She went on long walks with her fiance, and they were romantic and beautiful and meant so much to her. And then all of a sudden, life took that experience away from her, and so then she became paralyzed. She couldn't walk anymore. So you can see the sort of symbolic echo of that traumatic experience. That's symbolism. That's understanding 
the psyche through symptom and symbol. Doing things like that help you to be in right relationship with forces that are beyond yourself. So let me let let me ground that a little bit more. Had Freud and and his patient not gone through that understanding and seeing how what was really happening was that there was a, this experience of grief that was so profound that it was difficult to deal with had they not understood it symbolically and and seen that in 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 an, in effect there was almost like a god at work that was overpowering this person they would not have been able to um, transcend the paralysis. I'm not sure if. Well, how, how did they transcend? It was just was it just enough to acknowledge and recognize it? Well, and and to have that followed up with the with the emotional catharsis, you know, okay. to feel it. I mean, if if you just recognize something purely intellectually, and the felt experience isn't there then mm. you're back in the area of dissociated language. Um, wow, yeah. So it's like it ties in with what you were saying earlier about the experiences of some people when they're being raped, they go outside of their bodies yeah. so to dissociate from the body. So it's the importance of being in the body and feeling. And I think in yeah. the book you talk about the death of instinct. Not the death yeah. of instinct, but that uh, instinct is very much something that's there's the intellect on one side and the instinct which comes from within the body it's not necessarily mm -hmm. made of words right is that right and this is yeah and this is this is really this is classic jung it's also you know classic freud i mean i can my differences about what what he thought those instincts were but he has that basic idea too and um, I think how you see it playing out in something like deconstruction and postmodernism is, is that they would say, well, no, what you're calling instinct is really just a, just a cultural um, inheritance it's, it's, or it's just a, a bit of language. It's just an idea, but there's actually – there's no instinct there. You yes. know, that's just something that we've kind of made up. Um, and someone like Jung would say, oh, no, 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 no. That's the don't go down that road. That's a dangerous idea. Um, we have to continually come back to our animal selves, to our feeling selves, to our um, to to our our physical bodies, our sensing bodies. You mention in the book as well um, that like mythos and logos. Am mm -hmm. I pronouncing logos right? Anyway, that the the, uh, yeah. the that the logos is connected to the intellect, and the mythos is more, if I understand it correctly, connected to the the nature side of things. Is that right? Or maybe that's the, what I put on it. <laughs> I think that's how it's it's playing itself out. Uh, you know. Um, there's a, there's a real there's a real disconnect between 
between the two, the mythos and the logos. And um, God, these are huge questions. It just it reminds me. I I teach world religions, and in in Hinduism, you know the difference in um, Purusha and Prakriti. And Prakriti is nature, earth, and Purusha mm-hmm. is um, spirit. And mm-hmm. Purusha is associated with the male, the masculine, and Prakriti mm-hmm. or the earth is associated with the feminine. And yeah. I I just I mean I think you kind of touch on this in the book a little bit as well. That um, the it's to my mind a kind of a masculine masculine energy, mm-hmm. the intellect and the rationale, yeah. and that while maybe feminists might argue for more power and for more positions of power in the world, I often think actually that's the the masculine energy. I'll be uh, given out to for saying that maybe, but. Yeah. You know, that the, the nature and what's lacking is the feminine, but that f- sometimes people are complaining about the patriarchy by being patriarchal in a way. Yeah, yeah. It, I think you're really on to something. And it's a little bit it's a little bit difficult for me to talk about it, I think, because I'm so well aware of, you know, this sort of critique of the very ideas of the masculine and the feminine and... um kind of third generation feminists who who I think make arguments like the ones you just alluded to but I I th- I think you're right there is a a way of being in the world that I would call masculine that I think is being hyper emphasized and as a result, what I would call the feminine is being utterly left behind. And I don't mean I don't mean that those terms in this really reductive way where like, oh, the feminine is something that you have and I don't, and I have the masculine. And you know, I'm not trying to invoke these stereotypes and saying that they're truths. Not at all. But there's a way of being in the world that I would call feminine that I think is being utterly left behind by um, God, by just about everyone, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah. not about male, female, as in it's not necessarily about bodies. It's not about women or men. It's about a certain energy, perhaps, mm-hmm. or... A certain ethos. Um, right. You know, Carol Gilligan, um, pretty well-known feminist, wrote a very famous book called In a Different Voice. And she talked about kind of different ethical sensibilities that exist between men and women. And it was a very successful book, but it was also one that was criticized because she didn't do a lot to say that these differences were just results of culture, which made people say, well, okay, so you're saying that there's just these natural differences. And so she had to sort of like, as I remember it, kind of reconfigure her point of view. My response would be to say, no, there's probably some nature involved there. And that's okay. And we can also continue to, to look at how, you know, these things are 
culturally produced, that's fine too. But there's nothing wrong with saying that there's something, there's a, a feminine ethos and a masculine ethos. There's a feminine style of thought and a, and a masculine style of thought. And in each one of us, regardless of our sex, there's plenty of overlap there. Now that type of thinking just feels so much more sane to me and ultimately more healing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know much about Jung and I haven't read much of Jung, but one of the ideas I do really like is that every human has the feminine and the masculine. We all have those aspects within ourselves. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. I, I like that. I like, you know, the yin yang symbol to me is really powerful because you have the yeah. two, you have the two and then you have the opposites within the two and it's all moving together, you know. I think um, if we could accept that type of idea, our, uh, some of our thinking about gender and the way we're concretizing it would really shift, uh, you know. I mean, I if we could really fully accept this idea of androgyny and not literalize it, but just accept the idea that we're all feminine, masculine, and masculine, feminine, yeah. and and understand that not to mean that we are, you know, kind of literally male or female and then not. Or I mean, it's just we're concretizing what is a metaphorical reality. Mm. And, of course, the other thing I think when it comes to linguistics is that we think it's the words that are creating, like you point out. Mm -hmm. But actually, that if we change the words, the reality will still be there. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, at the moment, women are being called uh, uterus havers or mm -hmm. menstruators. <laughs> but, but, I mean, the reality is that even if we change change the word woman to menstruators and everybody accepts that word, then they'll want to change that word because the reality mm -hmm. can't be changed. Really, well, it can be a little bit maybe, <laughs> but the underlying biological kind of thing that gives us life, that's going to that's going to stay there. We can keep changing the words all we want, but it won't matter. Mm -hmm. We're not the ones in, in control of that. Or something. Right. And, and changing the words comes at a price. All of a sudden you're using these terms that don't really correspond or hook up with texts that were written just a few years ago. And you have, you have to do these sort of mental gymnastics to understand what the heck's being talked about. I mean, in the English language, you know, terms like male and female, woman and man, they have... I mean, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of associations and great works of art that were built around them and all these other things and all this, this wisdom of, you know, religious and humanistic built around what those things are. And then now we're going to confuse it with these really sterile forced terms like uterus haver and penis haver. And I mean, it's just, it's, I mean... And it's hard to not respond to those with just kind of, you know, rather crass jokes because, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I never thought of yeah. myself as a penis haver. I mean, it's like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> it's, Who knows what it, way it's going to go, I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I better wrap it up. We have been oh speaking for an hour. Um, oh, 
Um, thank you so much for chatting to me. I think your book is extraordinary. Um, well, thank you. And really important. And uh, if people uh, get it, and I recommend they get it and they read it, obviously. Um, oh, and can you tell us what your next book is going to be about? Then I will tell you the subtitle of the next book, which is Eternal Youth and the Myth of Deconstruction. So I'm going to compare, I am comparing Jacques Derrida and Judith Butler to the figure of the eternal youth uh, in, in mythology. Eternal youth is it's kind of like a Peter Pan figure. Because I, I, I sense a lot of Peter Pan in, in Butler and Derrida. So, Great. Um, Great. Okay, well, I'll be buying it. That's for sure. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank really you great. so much, Colette. This has been great. And I feel like you've just placed me in a lineage of great guests because you've had on Jonathan Haidt and Helen Pluckrose. And when I saw that, I thought, oh my gosh, I love these people. That's it for this episode of Spokes. You can find out more about Brett on his website, aldermancoaching.com. And there are more details in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode of Spokes, please do check out our other recordings and drop a review or a rating. And of course, don't forget to like and subscribe. Come on, Bruno. is produced by Colette Colfer and Terry Hackett. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.